Welcome to the Traveling Image Makers Podcast, your source of inspiration about travel photography. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride as we bring you on a tour around the world with our guests. Good day, everyone. This is the Traveling Image Makers Podcast, and I'm your host, Ugo Che. I just returned from a great weekend at the Out of Chicago Photography Conference. Uh, um, fantastic event, chock full of uh, sessions, conversations, uh, photo walks, uh, uh, and other events all about photography. And I was very happy that I was, uh, while there, I was asked to moderate a panel discussion. Uh, we had this great conversation with uh, three photographers. Two of them have been uh, previously guests on the show, like Scott Bourne, uh, member of the Board of Advisors at MacFun, Olympus Visionary, and uh, great wildlife photographer, author, and lecturer specialized in bird photography. Uh, in addition to Deb Sandage, who is an icon ambassador specializing in world travel and artistic imagery. And both of them were, as I said, previously guests on the show. In addition, we had Aaron Nace, uh, who is a photographer and very well known as the founder of the photography education site FLEARN. So what was the main topic of the discussion? Well, let me just uh, quote the title of the, of the panel. It was Real Travel Photography in the Age of Photoshop. So with those guests on the show, I mean, Scott Bourne, uh, is on the board of advisor of a company that produces and sells uh, photo processing software like Luminar and Aurora HDR. And Deb Sandage is very well known for her artistic photography. Imaginative, we could say. We, she, she does great creations. And she's not a, she's an unapologetic about doing so. And Aaron Hayes uh, is all about education. Uh, on Flurn, you can find lots of tutorials about Photoshop and Lightroom and other software that allows people to easily process and manu- manipulate their photos. So uh, I felt it natural to, to ask them about uh, the, the value of real photography, of true photography. Where do we put the boundary between photography and graphical manipulation? So I'm happy to say that my guests were very keen on uh, discussing this very openly and sharing their opinions about this. Um, but that was not the only topic that was discussed during this uh, this panel. Actually, discussion went on for about one hour and a half. So many other topics were, uh, were covered. And uh, you will discover them if you listen to uh, this episode and the next, because we have a full recording of the, of the panel, of the event. But it was so long that we decided to split it into halves. So uh, this week, episode 137 is the first half. And next week on episode 138, you will be able to listen to the second half. So I hope you will find this discussion as stimulating and thought-provoking as it was for me to moderate and listen to it. And uh, we'll uh, see you again next week with the second half. And now, without further ado, let's introduce our guests and start the discussion about real photography in the age of Photoshop. Enjoy! So welcome to our amazing panelists. Uh, it's a great pleasure and honor for me to be moderating this. I'm just going to 
try to give you a few inputs for, for discussion and you know, letting you share your views with, uh, with our audience today. Uh, by the way, this is going to be recorded for our podcast, uh, The Traveling Image Makers. And I just want to say hi from my co-host, Ralph Velasco, which, which uh, I share the responsibility of creating and publishing this podcast. Uh, he has a photo walk this morning, so he could not be with us, but uh, he said to say hi to all of you. So uh, my idea for this uh, conversation was to talk about uh, uh, what we can call real photography in the age of Photoshop, because I know you're all um, photographers, but you're also known for being digital artists, in a way. So not uh, refraining from creating art with whatever tools you have at your disposal. And Aaron here is also an uh, educator. This company is all about education. That's providing education about the, the tools that uh, let you create amazing images in many possible different ways. So, uh, first I would like to ask you a question, a dark question. Uh, what is for you the purpose or the purposes of photography? Because I think this question can help us understand where you're coming from and so seeing your, your perspective on, on this, on what is photography, what can be considered quote-unquote real photography, is probably shaped by your uh, idea of what purpose photography has to serve in the eye of the, of the audience, of the people who actually uh, view these photos. So, want to maybe go ladies first, Deborah? Ladies first. Okay, so what, what is photography... In my eyes, uh, it varies. It depends on who my target audience is. So if I'm doing work for me, it's going to be very different than the work I might do for a client. So, And also the, the type of work I'll do that I work with, for me, is going to be more personal, um, more conceptual. I'm going to put more of myself into it. But I'm, if I'm working for a client, then that's often going to end up something that's a little bit different. It's more about what the client wants, the client needs. The client may not need that personal Interpretation, you know, he may not want that neutral density filter, she may not want that uh, super color that I might want to put in. So I think it really depends on the outcome. So as, uh, as photographers, really, they have to think about who their audience is. For my personal walk, work, that I, I don't mind creating things that are definitely more personal, more, more conceptual, and having fun with that. Scott? Well, for me, uh, photography, and this is just for me, uh, it's an expression of and a memorialization of emotions that I felt during any particular moment that I'm trying to capture. It's also uh, capturing a, a, a memory or a moment in time, both for myself, for the subject, and for others. It's an opportunity to, because I'm a bird photographer, I just photograph birds. Uh, it's an opportunity, most importantly for me, to speak for creatures that have no voice and to share those pictures. Yeah, I guess, uh, you know, for me, photography, I mean, it's changed a lot since I started, I guess. It's not been, you guys have been shooting longer than I have, but um, I don't know. Every couple of years, I tend to want to take pictures of something totally different, and I, I find that my photography tends to... Uh, correlate with my own personal interests and those tend to change quite a bit also so um, I really I think that's one of the reasons I've stuck with photography is because it 
kind of goes hand in hand with other things that I'm interested in or other things that I enjoy doing. Um, just fits really nicely, you know, no matter no matter what your interest is, it's, it's, I feel like it's pretty easy to tie photography in. So, um, yeah, whether it be a, you know, expression of yourself, like, you know, you said, um, or, uh, you know, working with clients and helping them to express their vision. Um, yeah, I, I think it's all about bringing, bringing your ideas or emotions or interests, uh, you know, into a, into a visual form that other people can relate to. Right. Do you think that as, uh, when you're, for example, Deborah here, I think you call yourself a travel photographer, mostly, and Scott, you can call you a bird photographer or nature, wildlife, I don't know, Aaron, what you like to shoot most, but you are presenting some, some subjects to the people. Do you think you will have a responsibility to present at least something that is realistic, if not completely real? Or does that depend on the situation, as you said, the, the audience that you are presenting that to? That's a, I think it's a very good question. Um, through my personal art and, and whatever that I do, I want people to feel like what it was like to be there at that moment. It's very important for me to have put myself into the photograph so when people are looking they understand what it was like so if I'm, if I'm photographing waves or action of waves or uh, you know certain um, activity I want people to feel like they might get their feet wet or they have the duck you know there's something so intense that's happening in that photograph I want to share that moment with them so to me that that's very very important but uh, if I'm working for a, a client or something that's a different subject you know then I have to work in a little bit different way but I guess part of the enjoyment of it all there's different puzzle pieces and so you can work in different ways but as far as the reality I think that that's a really general and interesting statement because reality for me <laughs> might be really different than reality for someone else. Because I'm, I might be using certain tools to enhance what I believe or is part of the scene. So maybe using a neutral density filter to slow down the water and, and give that feeling of action so you can really see that happening in the picture. So that helps, that, that helps my story, that helps me illustrate the concept of the story I want to tell. So your your post-processing is at the service of the story you want to tell. Yeah, it's more in capture. I think post-processing is an accentuation. Scott? Well, I have two very different audiences from my photography. I shoot what's called natural history photography, which is my biggest clients is the Pearson Publishing Company. They publish school books, textbooks, field guides that identify birds. And for them, I can make no manipulations of any kind. So I have to actually give them the raw file. So I have to get everything right in camera. Fortunately, I'm old, and I used to shoot slide film, and I'm used to only having a couple of stops of variance and having to nail it. So I don't have a problem getting it right in camera, but for them, it's raw files, and I'm done. <clears throat> now, for what I consider my art, uh, I shoot what I call birds as fine art. Uh, there is no such thing as real. <laughs> it's what I decided is. And, um, I mean, generally, most people would say my photography is very realistic, but I might punch a color or I may change a background. If there's a Coke can in the background, I'm going to remove it. And, and I'm sorry to anyone who that offends. I deeply am sorry, but I'm still going to remove it. And uh, I'm going to crop the bejesus out of my pictures if I need to. If it looks good in a print, now keep in mind, I print really big. Uh, if you were in New York at Photo Plus, 
or uh, in Nashville, imaging, you saw my prints six feet by nine feet. So I can't crop a ton because I'm printing six feet by nine feet from a micro four thirds sensor. But I do crop, and uh, I don't have I don't have any decision to make about what's real or not when I'm making art because there's no such thing as real in art. I mean, you could argue that using a slow shutter speed to blur a waterfall. I don't know. I've seen a lot of waterfalls. None of them look blurry to me. So are we saying are we saying that's not real now? And Ansel Adams was dogged. He started with an original purist point of view and actually founded a camera clip called F64. And that camera club was all about no manipulation. And at the end of his career, he was dodging and burning his brains out. So it just, everybody evolves to what they think is okay. And I think for each person, the answer is different. Yeah, you know, I think it depends on, uh, I mean, photography is a really broad, it's art, you know. It's, uh, you can do a bunch of different stuff with it. And I think some applications uh, really call for a, a lot of Photoshop and post-processing and, you know, I, I think that's perfectly fine for those applications. And I think other applications, like photojournalism, you know, it's just a, not a good idea. It's, you know, it's not, not the idea. The idea of photojournalism is to capture what actually happened. And in that case, you know, I think keep post-production to a minimum. But, um, yeah, I really, I think it depends on the application. You know, it's a, if you're photographing a Samsung ad, you know, it's going to be in a magazine. It's like, of course, it's going to have a ton of Photoshop, you know. So, yeah, I think it just kind of depends. Yeah, speaking more specifically about uh, travel photography or nature photography <coughs> or not creating an ad, okay. you're at least uh, capturing something that really happened. Uh, and it, it's understandable. I mean, it's uh, I completely share that, that view. And in, in the pursuit of fine art, and conveying an emotion, pretty much anything goes. Do you think there is uh, there is a trend to do too much photo manipulation? I mean, I've seen things like adding a, a Milky Way or the Northern Lights over uh, San Mark Square in Venice, which you never see Northern Lights there. Stuff like that. I mean, is there a trend to do maybe too much of it? What, what do you think about this? When you see a photo like that, what's your what do you think? What do I think when I see a photo like that? I think it depends on, on who, again, the target audience is. If you're doing it for pure entertainment purposes, I mean, it's beautiful, it's fun, makes people happy. If you're doing it for a client, they may not be impressed that you can move part of the Chicago Great Wheel over next to <laughs> the Buckingham Fountain. You know, that's, but again, you, you might be creating a composite, so you know that's for an ad or something. But if you're shooting for the pure purpose of showing people what this is like, at a certain moment in time, and are, are we supposed to just be completely realistic? But realis- realism changes. Realism is different for me than it is different from Scott, and, and different for you. It's um, it, it, so the way I might see it is my personal interpretation and capture might be very different. Do I feel the dire need to present it in a certain way? I can only do it from my heart. That's for travel photographer. That's how I shoot. Well, again, I, I don't feel like I'm the photography police, so people can and should do whatever the heck they want to do as far as I'm concerned. But for me, like if I, I, I judge a lot of bird photo contests, and I'll see a picture of a Stellar's jay, which is a jay that's popular in the Northwest, and I'll see a flower from Florida in the scene, in which case I know this is a setup shot, and somebody 
didn't really get their natural history right because that Floridian flower would never be in the Pacific Northwest. So I don't care for those sorts of things. I'm not going to judge anybody that does it. But I do believe, you know, it's a little weird to see the Milky Way over London, you know, like it just like it looks over Washington. But again, if that gets somebody off, I'm like, do it. I, I, I mean, it just doesn't matter to me. Um, I've seen some composite work by some artists where I just don't even know how their brain conceived of what they conceived of. And, and you know, people might have gotten on uh, Michelangelo or the Sistine Chapel. I mean, you know, that's pretty crazy what he did there, but it's kind of an important work of art. So I just think it's best not to judge. It's best to let people... I, I think Deb's answer was really good. Like, it can only come from your heart. If it's in your heart and you need to share it, I don't think it's bad. I think it's bad if you intend to dupe people. Sure. If you say... I was in London and got this amazing shot of the Milky Way, and it's clear that it was a shot of the Milky Way from Seattle. Then I got an issue. Yeah, yeah. I guess I just agree with the both of you. You know, pretty much said it all. I mean, it's like uh, it's a bunch of different applications. You know, I really, I mean, I've seen a lot of very edited photos that I really like a lot, but. I wouldn't necessarily just call them like photographs of my, you know, my column digital art at that point, you know, composite images that kind of, you know, if you go combining a bunch of different photographs together, you know, it, I think it kind of crosses into something else, you know, at that point. And, and I, I think that's awesome. You know, it's, I think it gives people, you know, a chance to, to play around and, you know, gives people the opportunity to express ideas they have in, you know, in, in new ways and provided images that, you know, we've never seen before, even if they weren't uh, real necessarily. Um, I, I still enjoy looking at them. You know, I wouldn't, I don't believe that they're real, but that doesn't mean that I like them any less. Yeah, of course. What, what about people who look at this kind of composite, for example? Uh, I'm Again, I'm talking about specifically the, the field of travel photography. And I see, I show a photo of the, uh, Northern Life over Venice. Uh, and then they go to Venice or they, and they expect to see, or they go to the uh, Pacific Northwest and they expect to see a flower from Florida. And they don't see it there. And the reality can be kind of a disappointment. What? Because it doesn't match what they saw in those amazing photos. Whether they manipulated or not, because even a little uh, uh, extreme post-processing, you could say, you could paint a picture of colors, very, you know, there's a trend also in landscape photography, to very saturated colors, or even things like HDR. Those things to our eyes, then when we go there, they don't really look like that. So are we maybe doing a disservice to the people who travel? <laughs> well, I think the people need to manage their expectations. <laughs> if they're looking on something like Instagram, you have this amazing photograph, you know, and, and a lot of people do research for travel photography by looking at, they'll do a Google search or they look on Instagram, and a lot of times if you look in the hashtags, they're going to say something about how perhaps it was processed. They may say digital composition, they may say digitally enhanced or digitally creative or digital art. Um, and, so I think if you went to something pure and simple, if you go to 
if you look up some, on something like Google Earth, and then you can find the actual <laughs> without, without anything in, in Street View. In, in, <laughs> Street View. Seriously, I use this. This is great. You get a really good idea of what you're going to um, come across. And then when I look at pictures, uh, let's say I'm scouting for an area, I, you know, take what I find with a grain of salt, you know, and because some of these pictures might have been uploaded, there might be slides from like 20 years ago, and that doesn't even exist anymore. So I don't, I don't get too judgmental, and I take what I see with a grain of salt, and and I and I go with my own ideas, and, and, and to see what happens from there. Yeah, I think it's on the it's incumbent on the viewer to do due diligence. I don't know about you. But when I go to an IHOP, the pictures look a lot better than the food that comes <laughs> on the plate. <laughs> I think I go into every situation with an understanding that my expectations may exceed reality. And of course, reality depends on how much sleep I got. But <clears throat> I, I don't think that, you know, with the amount... See, that's, that's the, the good thing and the bad thing about the Internet is there's a lot of information. But the good thing is if you see seven pictures of... Venice probably won't have northern lights in them, and you see one that does, you might go, what doesn't belong and why? I, I, think it's, I think it's incumbent on the viewer. Again, I think if you, if you are representing something as factual that's not, then you've done a disservice to the viewer. But short of that, I don't think there's a problem. Yeah, I see, um, I mean, a lot of people seem to believe that if it's on the internet, it must be true. That's well, the problem, but you're right, right? Bias beware. I mean, it's like I say, to you they to just do. need to start at IHOP. That's where, it, that's where the harsh reality of the world will be unfolded for them. It doesn't look like that at all. Yeah, again, I agree. I don't, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I, I usually don't, if I look at the photo that's very obviously HDR, it's, I mean, it, I mean, uh, we're photographers, so we can recognize that sort of thing. I guess maybe you know people who aren't visual artists wouldn't recognize that, but um, yeah, it also depends on the time of day. I mean, you show up at sunrise, it's going to look a lot different than it will at noon. So you know, I've, I've seen beautiful photo. I was in uh, Arches National Park in Utah the other week and saw some beautiful photos of the arch at sunrise, and I was like, it's going to look like that. And I showed up at noon, and it was like, not at all, right? So, you know, that's, that can be a big part of it, too. Right. Uh, so talking some, about something more uh, personal, I would like to hear what is your favorite uh, workflow or your typical workflow that you employ in order to create your, your photos, the final results. In terms of what tools do you use? Uh, how do you like to proceed? And for instance, how long does it take for you to produce a typical final image? I'm <laughs> <laughs> looking at Mr. Luminar over there. What you do? Absolutely. Well, I think what happens is uh, I don't. I have an idea, a goal in mind when I when I go to take. Photographs. So let's say um, I've been doing a lot of personal projects of working with seascape. So I'll review the images, um, get an idea of which ones are communicating the idea and, and thought process that I that I wanted to work with. So I'll find somebody something that I really enjoy, then I'll start from there. Um, I do basic corrections first, and I know this is a long conversation that Scott and I had the other day about working with uh, with post processing. But for something like that. I want to be as a beautiful, and as and again making you feel like it, like it, what it was to be there at that moment. A lot of that isn't captured, and I'm just accentuating 
what was there to make it as beautiful for the viewer as possible. Because well, this is what I'm talking about, you know, as far as what target message you want to be able to send. So I'm um, looking through, so I, I work with Lunar. I think it's fantastic. I realize I've only scraped the surface of it, so I'm gonna <laughs> learn a lot, a lot more about the application. But there are things that you can do that was that were like when you saw it at that moment. And a lot of times the camera camera doesn't capture exactly what you were you had in mind. So you're accentuating certain things, you're toning down certain things, you're you're making it more like you felt when you saw the picture. So this you go through that post-processing to make it happen. What, what role does pre-visualization plays in, in your process? I mean, when you are in front of the scene, do you already have in your mind an image of how it, it might look like? So for instance, as Scott was saying, you don't see silky water on a waterfall with your eyes, but you imagine how it will look like for a long exposure, for instance. Is it easy for you to, to do such kind of pre-visualization? Well, I, I, I think pre-visualization is the key to great photography. Those of you who know my story of the photo that I made called Cranes in the Fire Mist, I spent 13 years of my life to get that picture. So I don't spend a lot of time in post. My average post-processing time is 20 to 30 seconds. I spend all my time pre-visualizing. So I saw a picture by my friend Arthur Morris that was second in the BBC Wildlife Competition, which is a very prestigious competition that has prize money in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, so of course that got my attention. I thought there were some problems with the photo. I thought it was too static. He made it at a place called Polsky del Apache National Wildlife Refuge, which is a place I've been teaching at for 35 years. So I decided to go and try to make a photo similar to his, but I wanted two birds to fly into the scene. His photo was very static. And to make this particular photo, I had to have an orange sky I had to have birds. I had to be at sunrise. The wind had to be out of a very specific direction, the north-northwest, because birds fly into the wind. I'd have birds flying. It had to be exactly zero or you know, zero Celsius, 32 Fahrenheit, because that's where mist comes, because the hot and the cold come together. Turns out mist doesn't come at 35 or 25. It comes at exactly 32 degrees. So all these things have to be present. So I went to this place 13 years in a row until they all happened, and then I made the picture. And it came out like I wanted it to. Uh, I'd still be there if it weren't, if it weren't had to happen, because these, I get pictures in my mind, and they haunt me. I had a picture I wanted to get for years at Bosque also, of a crane flying through a, a fairly full moon or a half moon. I finally got it this year. Uh, it took me 10 years to get that one. So I, I see pictures, and then I go find them. And then in post, not a big surprise, I'm president of a company that makes a product called Luminar. I use Luminar exclusively on my photos. I have for 19 months, and um, I'm 20, 30 seconds an hour. I don't get paid for this. I get paid for this. So because I have expensive taste, I'd rather do this. It's, it's, but you know, I don't begrudge anybody that likes to spend a lot of time in post. If that's your thing, I think it's great. I, I, my company makes great tools that will help you do all kinds of creative things. But I just try to get in and get out as fast as I can. So that, that's my workflow. 20, 30 seconds. Is, 30 seconds for me is an eternity in post. If I spend 30 seconds, I did something wrong. I should be able to do it in 20. I don't know, you like, like that? Do you plan a picture very much in advance or more of a spur um, of the moment photographer? Yeah, both actually. And, um, so, you know, a lot of my personal work, uh, 
I, I really just enjoy capturing friends and family and just like life, you know, and that's that's kind of like the majority of this stuff that I shoot is just, you know, like, hey, we're hanging out, let's get a fun picture. Like that, I enjoy doing that quite a bit. I also enjoy doing, you know, the total opposite where everything is is staged, uh, you know, where we bring in people and stylists and wardrobe and, you know, location and props and just basically make like a theatrical performance for the sake of a photo shoot. And that usually involves uh, kind of the opposite of Scott, you know, 8, 10, 15, 20 hours of Photoshop to, to, bring, to bring all that together. Um, and that, again, depends on the idea. Um, so I, I really enjoy doing, doing both. They're, they're a lot of fun. For the, you know, for the stuff I shoot with my friends and family, I, don't, I shoot it all. I have a, a Fuji. I saw someone else had a Fuji in here. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. I have a little Fuji, and I just set it to black and white, and I don't edit those at all. You know, I just I just send them straight off, and uh, and and I love that type of photography. I also love doing the other stuff. So, um, yeah, kind of runs the gamut, really. My little Fuji X100 as myself, which is set to black and white JPEG. Really? You too? <laughs> um, I use that. I use the XT2 for more. Elaborate work. Yeah. I typically shoot raw, but the X100 less is set in black and white JPEG. I use it for street photography, and most of the typically the only manipulation I do is cropping. So I like to do that. But for the landscape work, color, I shoot raw and I do a little bit Lightroom or Photoshop, That's depending on what's, what's required. Very, very similar to what you do. I, I don't set up. It's, Sets with models, <laughs> makeup artists, that's not my thing. I, I meet people in the street, I do travel photography, so I don't have the time to, to set up. Um, Deborah, do you do a lot of pre visualization? Uh, yeah, planning your Yes, uh, Scott brought that up. Pre visualization is, I think, essential. So it, usually I'll go to an area I, I scout out, I, I walk the area. I may not walk it at the time that I'm going, but I want to be able to see the angles and get an, a good idea of what. I want to be able to shoot when it's time. So I, I really want to create these hero shots at the best time of day. Scott's going to be there at oh, dark 30 to be ready for those birds, but I'm going to be down in front of uh, the Millennium Bridge in London just waiting for the moment to happen so that you get the right light. And when I when I look at something like beautiful architecture, and, and, and I just I just love the lines, and, and, and I'm thinking about, I mean, I'm now already thinking maybe it's a black and white picture, that kind of thing, but I'm also thinking about man, there's a lot of people walking on this bridge. <laughs> you know, there's hundreds of people coming back and forth, though. Okay, so what happens if I put 15 stops of neutral density on my lens and see what happens over time? So over maybe five minutes, you don't even see these people. Then it becomes all about the lines of the architecture. And Except for I had a picture of, that I had tagged you in with only two people. They stood there for five minutes and talk to the whole time. So they were in my picture, but it looked really cool. But but that was my vision for the picture. You know, it always feels good when you're when you're you've got the idea and you're able to bring it to reality. So I have a lot of different ideas about travel photography, so they may not be I want to say maybe I have to say just not snapshot, but I really want to bring in more to a work of art. In in some cases that you know I'm able to do that through using different tools. Uh, what is for you the relationship between your own experience, the experience that you 
have when you're on a, on a location, in a place that you're photographing, and the final image. I, I want to quote something that Ian Plant, that was here last year, we did a panel discussion about landscape photography, and he said this, this uh, I have this quote from him, he said, what I love about photography is getting to experience that moment that you capture with the camera. That experience is the most important thing for me. The final product is never as good as the personal experience. What's your What's your take on this, Scott? Well, that's pretty similar to something that Cartier-Bresson said. He did say he didn't really care about the prints after he shot the picture. He forgot about it because it was the moment that he wanted to, you know, capture that defining moment. But I mean, my work is very personal because ever since I was eight years old. And yes, I can remember that far back, surprisingly enough. I've been in love with birds. And when I found out they could fly, that was it for me. I'm like, oh man, you know, I want to do that, you know. And so my whole life has been spent in love with birds. So I have a personal relationship. I talk to the birds. I say things to them like, come a little closer, I'll make you famous. And uh, <laughs> I, I feel like, if you see my eagle pictures, many of which I take with seven millimeter, 14 millimeter, 17 millimeter lenses, I can get within 24 inches of a bald eagle. So I feel like it's a very personal, spiritual experience for me. And I look at the picture as, again, just a way to preserve and protect, first and foremost, believe it or not, my memory. And then it just so happens people want to buy them because they want to, they know that the eagle had a memory there, maybe. Uh, so I, all of this is, I used to say, and I said two years ago, I was here and I gave my speech, I consider all of us that are photographers high priests and priestesses of memory protection. I think it's a very high calling. I think it's very spiritual. I think what we do matters. I think after we're gone, these little pictures that we've taken will, will leave a trail or a trace to some other species or some other you know, era, and maybe aliens will come and go, what were these things that could fly? They're so cool. I mean, uh, you know. Uh, so it's all very personal for me, and I don't think, when photography is practiced at its highest level, I don't think it can be done that way without being personal. I remember a photo that I saw years ago, I think it was shot by Paul Micklin, um, National Geographic photographer, so published on the National Geographic. It was a photo of a walrus somewhere in the Arctic or Antarctic, I don't know where those beasts live, probably the Antarctic. And the, the walrus was shaking his head and was lifting snow from the ground with his tusks. And you could see from the, the perspective of the photo, he shot it really close with a wide-angle lens. And it was like a few feet from a beast that is a couple of tons in weight. So that, that must have been an amazing experience, that photo. These are the kinds probably that nature photographers uh, expect to experience. I personally, when I shot my first wild lion, I was I was amazed. I mean, I could barely contain myself. Now the photos are crap <laughs> because they weren't good at taking photos of lions. But I still look at those photos to to remember the that experience, my my first encounter with a, a lion in the wild. Aaron, what's your take on on this? Yeah. Um... Can you repeat the question? Yeah, it was about the, the value of personal experience. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. Compared to the final image. Yeah, for sure. No, that, that's a big part of it. I mean, I, I think a big part of the reason I fell in love with photography was because I 
was a reason for me to go do fun stuff, you know? It's like, oh, I got a cool idea. Let's go do this thing that, you know, like, let's go in the woods at midnight with a bunch of flashes and do something crazy. Like, just would never do that, you know, with, without photography or, you know, using photography as a reason to travel the world or get close to wildlife, you know, or just uh, capture good times with your friends and family and, uh, you know, capture important you know, events in your life, and uh, yeah, I, I think that's, you know, that that really is most of it, you know, I, I think for me anyway, it's, uh, you know, if not, I would just like set a camera up on a drone somewhere and just have it do the work, you know, but yeah, being there for the actual event, that's a big part of it, but yeah, I, I really never am able to capture the reality in a picture, you know, it's like it's never as good in a picture for me anyway. Maybe in a few years we'll get one like that, but yeah, it's always better in person. So whatever you think about it, the issue of photo manipulation and so on, and, and we all know that, as Scott was saying, that Ansel Adams was doing a lot of darkroom work, uh, dodging and burning and cropping and so on. But the tools at his time were limited in what he could do. Uh, now, tools like Photoshop, they, they were designed not just for photographers, they were designed for digital artists. So the, the, the trend to uh, move a little bit away from pure photography into more of digital art, in, in what part do you think it is driven by the ready availability of tools and also thanks to people like Aaron here who are educators and Deborah too, uh, to read readily available and easily available and cheap tutorials that explain every possible uh, feature of those tools and then people try to emulate what they see in a tutorial. So is this something that, are the tools driving our vision in photography in a, in a way or not? Deborah? I think that's a fascinating question because I think that there's a lot of trends in photography that that are pure fun. I mean, it, it, a lot of times you're, you're out shooting and just the experience of shooting is pure fun. But some, coming back and being able to do something in your image that is so different and, and expressive. So I'll take this crazy example of a photograph, you know, where you, where, where you can actually animate parts of an image. So you are creating digital art. So for a lot of people, it's not the reality. It's the experience of creating digital art and you can do this you know this is something I did like 10 years ago with the flood filter you know I, you know, I had shot some beautiful still sorry I took them and <laughs> made, a, made a little graphic silhouette of them but then I added a, a part of the image the reflection and, and, and the sun and so you can work with that idea it, it, but, but I look at it as digital art you know not as uh, something that is real but I think that could be very fun for a lot of people I think people uh, a lot of people enjoy the idea of um, working with something like parallax 2.5D uh, imaging or working with the idea of creating maybe a, a time lapse as a hyperlapse. So uh, there's a lot of different things that people can do with their images rather than just stills. Well, I think trends in photography have been going on for a long time. I mean, <coughs> excuse me, when, um, when you look back at the work of somebody like Paul Strand or some of the photographers of the 30s and the 40s and the iconic work they did, you see it inform the work of the photographers that came after them. I think if Paul Strand would have had Luminar, he might have been doing some really crazy stuff. Uh, obviously, the, the availability of today, I mean, I look at photography, I'm, I started doing photographs 47 years ago, I got paid for my first photograph. So, 
almost over five decades, everything's different. I mean, there was no such thing as a good zoom lens when I was 18 years old. There was like the crappy one and the crappier one. And, uh, you know, now a $200 zoom lens is really good. Uh, so the tools are amazing. The software is amazing. Uh, I think in all forms of art, people express themselves. So I've studied a lot the, na- the, the notion of learning. Um, my company invests a ton of money in teaching our software, so we really wanted to go to the source. I've worked with some PhD-level educators who specialize in education, and they tell me that it's between 70 and 90% of learning is what they call the discovery phase, just realizing something is possible which triggers a whole cascade of next events. So I think because people can see a picture by Deb, the way she does it, using the tools she does, or a picture by me, whoever, they, they start to see something possible. Maybe they start to riff on that, and then a whole new idea comes to them. So they're basically expressing something based on what they've seen. And that's why I always encourage young photographers to study the work of the masters, study people like you know Alfred Stieglitz, Ansel Adams and Imogene Cunningham and figure out what they were doing and see if that informs your decisions today. Yeah, I think the creation of, you know, images kind of goes hand in hand with the tools available. You know, the more tools that are available, the more options you have to create images. I I really think that they, they really do go hand in hand and, you know, looking at what other photographers have done before you and kind of standing on the shoulders of you know, the, the greats before you and uh, using the tools that you have available, you know, and new tools become available all the time. And, you know, there's, uh, you know, even since I've started, there's there's so many new tools for post-processing. You know, drones have become a, a reality, mostly in video now still, you know, but they're, they're going to make their way into stills and they're going to make their way into lighting subjects and they, you know, you may photograph a bird with a drone one time, but, you know, you may fuck, maybe not, I don't know. Well, I think the, the, the drones and the birds may not get along. They may not, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've seen on... Uh, I thought about the idea, but I'm concerned that an eagle would chase down and destroy my drone. Probably. <laughs> Probably. I think, I think I've seen a video of an eagle attacking drones. Actually, in Denmark, they train birds, hawks, to destroy drones because they have privacy concerns. So they're actually police hawks. That's cool. They go out, see a drone, destroy it. I mean, if you've ever seen even a peregrine falcon hit a bird, it's a puff of feathers and it's brutal. So I, I'm too cheap. I don't want to invest the money on a drone and have it get destroyed. But nice idea. Totally. Yeah, and I've seen, you know, planet Earth and stuff. They'll put a camera right on a bird's head as it dives before. So, you know, just all the cameras are going to get smaller, technology is going to get cooler and. You know, I, I think that uh, every time a, a new piece of hardware or software comes out, someone's going to find a, a new way to use it. And um, I, I think it's just going to continue to push the art form forward. If I can answer my own question and say that technology and uh, tools, the availability of tools, have always influenced the vision of photographers and the trends. Uh, the invention of the 35 millimeter format in camera by Oscar Bauer. We would not have Robert Capa photographing the Spanish Civil War or the D-Day the way he did without that camera who was able to carry in his pocket and get... I mean, war photography before then was just generals posing in a battlefield. Troops there because they had to stay still for a few minutes maybe 
and they had those big cameras. And now reporters were able to go into war and photograph war as it was really happening. And that was due to the invention of a specific type of camera. So to answering my own questions, uh, I believe that that's nothing new. That tools can, uh, can influence the, the vision and trends in photography. Um, speaking about uh, education, what do you think can the educator's role be in shaping the vision and making people understand that there are maybe some limits that in certain circumstances should not be surpassed, I mean, in terms of manipulation and so on, so, and driving this vision? Do you think they, Aaron, since you are mostly into education? Sure. Yeah, no, I, I feel educators have a, have a responsibility to... Uh, to inform their audience of, uh, you know, the the ethical implications behind uh, using tools. And uh, for instance, I teach retouching. Right? That's like everyone wants to know how to do retouching. But personally, I don't really like it that much. I don't. I don't like the idea that people feel like they need to be retouched in order to be attractive or pretty. Like that to me is like a sickness that we're. <laughs> you know, going through as a species and like that's, it's a, it, I feel as an educator, like, okay, this is, it's my job to teach you how to remove a, you know, little blemish if you want to do that. But also with that, I always try to, you know, impart the message that this is, this is how you do it. But if a client wants you, you know, if someone says, hey, can you remove this blemish from, you know, from this photograph, then sure, yes, I will. I will do that for you because that's what you want. But I'm not just going to go out on my own and try to make you look like a different person, or you know, take that take that to an exaggerated level. So, you know, I'm I'm actually most of the time I'm saying, you know, here's how you do retouching or whatever it is. But um, I, I I hope for the day that people don't want this anymore. So that's, you know, that, that's kind of like basically teaching myself out of a job, I guess. But, <laughs> you know, yeah. Well, there are many other things that can be taught and learned. So definitely. You be out of a job. Definitely. But as long as you've got an audience, people listening to you, I, I think you have some responsibility to, uh, to try to better the social situation. And uh, in my particular instance, that's, that's one of the ways that I try to do that. Yep. Well, I think that for me, um, obviously a lot different type of teaching that you do. So I may be teaching in the field uh, as far as travel photography, but I'm, th I'm thinking more of in capture. So I wanted to be able to inspire people to go to get up at dark 30, <laughs> to get to the location before things happen. So um, I'm thinking of a location that I went to in, in uh, a lake led and you know getting there really like an hour early um to wait for the light and so this is what we're talking about you know to be inspired by by what's happening at that moment if you go at two o'clock it's just not going to happen so these things only happen at a certain time so be able to capture use the tools that we need to let's say you need to use something like a um, and I, hate, I don't want to call this photo manipulation, but I think you're uh, nudging the photo in the right direction when you need to use something like a graduated neutral density filter or you need to use a polarizer. Those things are just things, little tools that you use in the field. 
And then as far as bringing it to a reality, is if the image is captured as best as possible, there really won't be much that much that you need to do. You know, so as long as you think about again pre visualization and getting new concepts um, before you shoot. Yeah, again, same thing I said earlier. When I'm teaching about bird photography, I tell people if your clients are natural history clients, then you have an obligation to record the image exactly as it was and leave it be, which may mean that you have to work extra hard because you can't move that telephone pole. You can't you can't do any of that kind of stuff. It just has to be the raw file. But if people are creating art, I don't feel any obligation to tell them do this or don't do that because it's art. I mean, I do a crazy thing where I photograph a bird, I print it on a canvas, I then have gotten into painting lately and I do oils on top of my photograph to accentuate certain parts of that, then I make a photograph of that, and then I make lithographs of that. Now, you know, there's no limits when I'm doing that. I mean, I'm, I'm getting crazy into multiple mediums, and so again, it just depends on, you know, I will just comment on this. This is very cultural. Um, Aaron's comments about not wanting people to feel like they need to be retouched, I know where that's coming from, but if you do portraiture in China, and you don't liquefy the crap out of every picture, you're never getting paid again. Because in China, they want every part, they want their pictures to look like cartoons. That's what millions of people demand. And if you don't do that, they, the last thing that they want is anything remotely realistic. So it's very cultural. It depends on where the culture is and what they're looking for. Uh, fortunately for me as a bird photographer, there's nothing too controversial. Uh, I'm not trying to make this blue jay look a little skinnier because I think we're trying to make a statement about fat. Uh, I, I just, you know, I don't have any of these issues that, that struggle, I struggle with. But I do have to, again, for natural history photographs, that to be 100% accurate. So I can't, I can't say, wow, this, this Mexican jay would look really great if I punched up the blues. If I'm selling it to a field guide, I can't. But if it's art, I can make those blues purple if I decide to. It's just art. And so this concludes the first half of the recording of the conversation that was held at the Out of Chicago Photography Conference about real photography in the age of Photoshop. You will be able to find this recording together with all the show notes and links at ttim.photo slash 137. And with next episode, we will publish the second half of this panel recording. Before closing, I would just like to remind everyone that you can find uh, everything about me, Ugo Che, at my website, ucphoto.me. And as for my co-host, Ralph Velasco, who will be uh, again be with us shortly, you can find everything about Ralph at photoenrichment.com or uh, on various social media channels as at Ralph Velasco. And now, let's get out and shoot! <laughs>